You're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, Ben Eltham came in to talk about federal politics, then radiation oncologist and CEO of tobacco-free portfolios, Dr. Bronwyn King, joined me in the studio to talk about the movement and campaign she's led to get superannuation and pension funds to divest from tobacco. Then we had John Keane, Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney, join me to talk about the new despotism of the 21st century. And finally, Jeff Maslin spoke about his new book, An Uncertain Future, Australian Bird Life in Danger. And you are listening to 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. This is the show, Uncommon Sense. And we have Ben Altham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda with us in the studio to chat about federal politics. Hey, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Morning. Morning, morning. Morning. Yes, you look a little bit tanned, I must say. I've been up in sunny Queensland. Uh, it was about 25 <laughs> degrees up there. It was very nice indeed. Can't even imagine it, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. People were getting around in T-shirts. Oh, <laughs> That's crazy. You know what? That said, I went to Blackwood the other day, which is near the Lerdederg State Park, and uh, it was about eight degrees, I believe, and Mm. there were people walking around in shorts and thongs. Right. Well. So these people are hardcore. I I guess it's just what you're acclimatised to, isn't it? You know. I felt like a bit deficient because I actually love the cold, so I felt like I need to up my game. But uh, Blackwood is an amazing town, by the way, and there was a triple R sticker on the back of a road sign, so I felt that was a good um, a uh, good represent, sign. Represent, represent yeah. Blackwood. Thank you, Blackwood. <laughs> Shout out to Blackwood. Exactly, exactly. So, Ben, um, there's been quite a few surprising developments in the last week in federal politics. One in particular, uh, let's start with Scott Lund- the now former senator uh, for the Greens, who had to resign because he actually wasn't eligible to be a senator in the first place. I mean, WTF, Ben? Yeah, what a disaster for the Greens. (laughs) I mean, he's the deputy leader. He's one of the most talented guys in the party. Um, He's generally considered to be one of the smartest guys in the parliament. And And one of the younger ones. He's made one of the you know, most basic mistakes you can make, which is to not check your eligibility. Uh, So, yeah, basically the Constitution says that you must be um, an Australian citizen only, an Australian citizen to sit in the parliament. And Ludlam, born in New Zealand, had not checked on whether he had New Zealand citizenship uh, by dent of the fact that he was born there. And it turned out he did, thus making him ineligible. Mm. Um, a fairly basic mistake and I think um, a pretty embarrassing one, I think, for the Greens and for Ludlam. And, and one that, that I think really removes a, a fair bit of, of talent from the Greens and uh, caps off a bit of a bad month for the Greens. A very bad month. And isn't it kind of surprising to think that someone wasn't aware they were a citizen of another country, particularly if he actually had travelled back to New Zealand? Look, um, I believe his explanation, which is that when he was naturalised as an Australian citizen, um, you know, years ago, that that then that that process of naturalisation removed his New Zealand citizenship. So um, the technicality is you have to take steps to renounce your citizenship. Um, and he thought that by being naturalised that that had been covered off on. Yeah. Um, turns out it hadn't. So, you know, I think I do I do take his explanation at face value that it, that he just 
you know, that he got it wrong. Um, but it's certainly a bad mistake, you know, and a rookie error. And it shows that yeah. politics, for all the ideological battlefield, politics is also sometimes just about technicalities and doing your homework and dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And mm. um, and if you don't do that, then you can be found wanting. Well, it's not the first time it's happened, Ben, is it? No, it certainly isn't. You know, there have been a number of challenges to the High Court and senators removed over this. Probably the most relevant precedent is Heather Hill, the old One Nation senator from Queensland back in the 90s. She was a dual citizen of Britain and Australia and she was ruled by the High Court to be ineligible for that reason. So, you know, Ludlam should have known, you know, and he should have checked. And and I think it's a a bad cock up. Mm -hmm. And um, so time will tell whether this removes Ludlam from, you know, public life altogether or whether he's able to mount a comeback. Of course, nothing stops him from uh, fixing up his, his citizenship and then running for parliament again. Uh, but, you know, I guess we'll, we'll just have to wait and see on that. Yeah, it's really interesting. And hasn't he been around for a while? I think was it about 11 years? Yeah, 10 years in the Senate. So yeah. certainly one of the most experienced Greens parliamentarians. And, you know, a guy we might add who's had an important role in scrutinising government legislation. So he's got well-known expertise in IT, in privacy, in metadata, in some of these complex issues around government retention of information, you know, which is more and more important in our modern world. So yeah. the parliament has lost, I think, one of its more knowledgeable policy brains on that kind of stuff. He was also a forensic questioner in Senate estimates. Mm. Um, <laughs> and he was really good for getting information out of recalcitrant bureaucrats. So, um, you know, as a journalist, I think we'll miss that yeah. one as well. And it was the way he approached it too. It wasn't antagonistic in, in the way that some senators can be, but just probing. Yes, he just is just a very smart guy who yeah. knew what questions to ask. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. The Greens now get to uh, replace Ludlam um, with um, probably the third senator on the Greens ticket from 2016. Um, so we'll see whether that happens. Of course, nothing stops that fellow, whose name has temporarily escaped me, but he's a 22-year-old apparently, so that'll be interesting if he does become the senator. Um, nothing re- stops him from resigning subsequently and um, and then giving the seat back to Ludlam, um, you know, but whether that people will be into that or, you know, whether that will be popular or not, I think we don't know. Mm. You know, when you vote in the Senate, you vote for a party, obviously. So I think people understand that, you know, while we have popular senators and unpopular senators, ultimately the Senate is uh, a seat in which proportional representation is the way that we vote and so the the parties themselves allocate the seats. Yeah. I've just uh, had a quick look. It's um, Jordan Steele-John, who is a 22-year-old university student. That's right. So, I mean, on the one hand, I'm kind of interested to see if he does take up his seat, um, if if that's how it rolls out, because it would be great to see a 22-year-old in the Senate. It would be nice to see uh, any kind of millennial slash Gen X-ish person represented in the parliament. Absolutely. I believe, um, so I believe uh, Mr. Steele John um, also uh, has a disability, so that that will be... um, you know, I think that would be great in terms of representation. Great advocate. For someone like that to be in the Senate. And we've seen in Britain with Mahiri Black, 
uh, who's a 19-year-old in the Houses of Parliament over there. She's made a huge impact there for the Scottish National Party. Mm. So, you know, young people, when they get a chance to be elected representatives, can be very powerful voices for their constituents. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see there. Definitely. And it was uh, also rather entertaining to see that uh, a certain former Prime Minister decided to uh, tweet out the proof that he has renounced his British citizenship because there was queries over that from a a Senator Darren Hinch. Absolutely, yeah. Um, So there's a number of Senators who've been born in other countries and then taken up uh, spots in Parliament and Tony Abbott is one of them. Now he did renounce his citizenship back before entering federal parliament and you know if scott ludlam had taken the time to check on that stuff and done that he would not be in this position today Mm. now ben there's another major development which happened uh yesterday and there's some also significant props that uh were in use at this press conference we saw malcolm turnbull um talking about the prospect of a new super portfolio uh, which would really be the equivalent of what the Home Office is in the UK or Homeland Security in America. And it's combining quite a few areas of responsibility, taking some away from the Attorney General and putting it all together. Um, could you share with us more about that and what the implications are? Sure. So Malcolm Turnbull gave a press conference yesterday um, complete with uh, special forces operatives in masks with guns and a very uh, sinister-looking gunboat <laughs> mounted behind his lectern. I highly recommend people looking yeah. this up because it's, yeah, really yeah. funny. Um, some of the, the Not imagery... Not security is funny, but just the props were so extreme. The, the imagery is overtly militaristic. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. These were apparently uh, serving special forces operatives. Well, it's, isn't it politicising the defence force, really? Undeniably. How, how, what else could it be? Uh, so it was certainly that. Um, and the announcement was about a new portfolio, as you mentioned, a, a ministry. We don't know what it's going to be called, I don't think, but it would be you know, roughly a home affairs or homeland security or something along those lines. And, yes, it will incorporate basically immigration plus ASIO and the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Border Force into this, yes, new super portfolio of uh, federal security agencies. Um, And I think really completing the militarisation of immigration, um, which has been going on probably since Tampa in 2001 and, um, you know, all the way now to essentially um, a a military portfolio. So, I mean, I think... um, it does raise all sorts of questions about the separation of civil and military policy in this country, uh, the growing militarisation of these domestic agencies, you know, and also whether what what's so broken that they need to fix this thing mm. by creating this new thing. Okay, so the, the current structure sees the federal police and ASIO report to the Attorney General, um, and that's always been the way it's been, and, and there's certain logic to that, given that the Federal Police, after all, are a law enforcement agency and the Attorney General is the top law officer of the land. Um, and similarly, the, uh, the the spooks, the spies at, at ASIO, uh, they also report to the Attorney General. So I'm uh, moving those guys across into a different ministry. On the one hand, maybe it makes very little difference. It's just a different minister that they report to. 
On the other hand, you know, it places an awful lot of power in that minister. Mm-hmm. Now, we already know that the immigration minister, by dent of the Migration Act, has incredible discretionary power to keep people in this country or to deport them, um, power that's not very well scrutinised by the courts, as successive high court judgments have found. Um, and now to that role will also be added responsibility for the spies and responsibility for the federal cops. So an incredibly powerful role has been created there. You know, and I think there does need to be some questions asked about what sort of checks and balances will be put in place. And, of course, the man who will be that minister will be Peter Dutton. Mm. Well, doesn't it seem like it's a bit much for one minister? It's a lot of responsibility for one minister. How can anyone keep across that many issues and, and the real detail in such a huge portfolio with such significant responsibilities? It just it does seem a little bit um, ridiculous. That The ex- explanation is it could be quite efficient, but it almost seems that it would introduce inefficiency given um, that you're, you're just adding complexity to one giant portfolio. Well, that's true, and I think, you know, it is the case that there's an awful lot of responsibility there. Um, I think the other thing to think about, though, is also, you know, it's not so much just how much responsibility is loaded up on the shoulders of one person. It's about how decisions are made in government. Now, there's meant to be a national security committee, for example, uh, that all of these really important national security issues are taken to, and that has the Prime Minister on it, it has Peter Dutton already on it, it has the Attorney-General on it. So all of these sort of really national issues around the, the big picture stuff should be going to that committee anyway. You know, and then... We also understand that uh, this decision hasn't been made by Cabinet. This has been a decision made by Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister, really flying solo because he has that right under the Australian Constitution to divvy up the ministerial responsibilities as he sees fit. So um, there's apparently considerable disquiet amongst some of Dutton's Cabinet colleagues about, you know, this move. So, you know, I think this points to the broader tensions within the Liberal Party Uh, I think we'll see considerable commentary from the national security establishment over the next few weeks about Mm. the pros and cons of this decision, whether it's actually a good idea or not. Uh, The US US model, I think, has been patchy, to say the least. Um, Many people consider the US Homeland Security Administration to be an unwieldy mega bureaucracy that doesn't really get a lot of stuff right. Mm. The UK is a bit different. The Home Office has always been um, that portfolio in Britain. So it's got 100 years of of kind of, uh, I guess, tradition whereby... Um, in a very centralised state, which the UK doesn't really have a a state government level of government. So many of the functions that we give to the states and territories in Australia is given to London in the UK, and the Home Office has always had that responsibility. So it's a bit different over there. Um, But, you know, I think the UK experience is also instructive in the fact that uh, there are opportunities, but there are also political threats posed by the Home Office. So, Uh, the current Prime Minister of the UK, Theresa May, she was the Home Secretary for five years before she was the Prime Minister and now many of her decisions as the Home Secretary are coming back to haunt her. And so I think this will be a role that will be actually a very difficult role for any minister that takes it on and likely to have many, uh, actually many controversial um, 
um, judgments and decisions that will be implied by by taking it on. Indeed. And we have seen um, some experts come out, in particular John Blacksland, who uh, suggested that the way we already have um, structured our portfolios is the envy of the world. Uh, and that, and also referencing Julie Bishop, our foreign minister from 2014, who suggested that she saw no reason to make any changes uh, and she would need to see significant proof from the organisations themselves, such as ASIO and the Federal Police, to suggest that there were really any deficiencies in the current way of operating. This is now going to Cabinet today. It does seem quite odd that Malcolm Turnbull has made an announcement before Cabinet has signed off on such a major change. I mean, what do you think the strategy is behind that? I guess he's confident he's got the numbers in Cabinet because, <laughs> you know, he's going to look very foolish indeed if Cabinet um, roll him on yeah. this. I don't think that's really likely. But then doesn't it also put Cabinet in a really difficult spot because uh, they can't really provide that dissent if they, well, maybe they can, but it does seem that, you know, if they don't all agree, then they're undermining um, their own government. Absolutely, you know, and um, I'm sure George Brandis, the current Attorney General, will, be not, will not be happy about this. Um, it, it does, it, I mean, governments reshuffle portfolios all the time, okay? So this does happen a lot. Um, and so, you know, in the end, it's often just a change of letterhead and a change of stationery. And, or just a change of wording. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. So, I mean, I think we can we can get a little bit too carried away with the imagery and the symbolism of it. Um, but I think in terms of national security, though, there are important implications of this, mm-hmm. and I think we do need to take this very seriously. So how it plays out, what the final kind of structure of this super department looks like, I think will be will be interesting. But, you know, as is the way of federal politics, it wouldn't surprise me if in three years' time it's broken up again and the various component parts are distributed off to a bunch of other ministers because, mm. you know, the Canberra bureaucracy is like that. It's like an amoeba. It's always gobbling things up and then splitting off into other things. There are unforeseen circumstances in any policy decision, so it'll be interesting to see uh, if this progress what that is. Um, and Ben, just finally, we've seen uh, the new federal Liberal Party president, Nick Greiner, uh, in the media talking about a range of issues. One is the, the Liberal Party's need to pre-select more women. Uh, we've seen Senator Linda Reynolds from WA talking about the fact that if it doesn't pre-select more women, then it will lose elections. Um, and that's her, her argument. And, and also that merit isn't currently being... Uh, truly operating in the Liberal Party. <laughs> wow, which very, that's very news interesting. Newsflash, yeah, but it's great to hear a Liberal, uh, you know, Senator actually state that. And then also he's uh, come out and said uh, that he will be urging Tony Abbott uh, to stop undermining the Turnbull government. Does Nick Greiner really have any ability to uh, pull Tony Abbott into line? <laughs> I would suggest not. No, I don't think so. Um, not only is Nick Greiner not really a friend of Tony Abbott's, but um, he's from the different faction of the party. So, you know, the fact that Nick Greiner, a well-known moderate, obviously a former Premier of New South Wales, is now the new federal director really just uh, entrenches that 
victory for the Liberal moderates that we talked about last week. Mm. So, yes, I don't expect the Conservatives and the right of the Liberal Party to be listening to what Nick Greiner <laughs> has to say. Yes, well, we'll watch and wait that, watch that space and wait to see what happens with uh, the divisions, the ongoing divisions yeah, in the Liberal Party. absolutely. But, I mean, good to see that they're talking about getting more women into Parliament. Mm, of course, the definitely. proof of the pudding is in... It's Action. in the pre-selection, isn't yeah. it? And, and that's been where they've fallen down consistently is is finding good candidates to put up in elections. They just aren't doing it. No. Well, you need to pre-select women, but you also need to pre-select them into safe seats. That's right. And uh, we've seen in the WA ballot um, that's been coming up recently that they had an all-male ticket. So, uh, And that's despite there being women available and who would definitely be qualified to run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen this problem time and time again in so many other aspects of society where, you know, there's there's talk about it being about merit and talk about, you know, quotas and there's talk about evening up the playing field. But when it comes down to it, when it comes to the crunch, powerful men don't want to give up those positions of power. And so I think for the Liberal Party, for those women to get seats, they're going to have to blast those men out. You know, it's, it's going to be a matter of... Uh, hand-to-hand combat, I think. Well, let's just say it's a representative democracy and we're not representing Australia in our current parliament, so we need to get our act together. Well, that's in so many ways we're not representing Australia. I mean, it's not just the whiteness and the maleness of the parliament, it's the wealth of the parliament, Mm. Um, it's the linguistic makeup of the parliament. We have very few non-English speakers in in the parliament. Uh, So there's all sorts of ways in which this... The, the parliament is not very representative of broader Australian society. No, but if you can't get 50% of the population represented, then you're really going to be struggling to change culture for all of these other aspects of diversity, aren't you? Yes, but does the Liberal Party really want to change that stuff? I mean, I, I would question whether it really does. I mean, No, but... That's the point, right? You, if you, even if you don't want to, what uh, Linda Reynolds is saying is your survival is based upon actually moving with the times. Yes, so I think it's a mismatch of interests, isn't it, really? So the broader interests of the Liberal Party would be well served by getting more talented women into the parliament. Uh, But the interests of the men who currently occupy those roles will not be served by that. So this is one of the problems that political parties face. They often solve this via factional systems, as the ALP does, and the ALP does have a quota. You know, and the quota in the ALP has been pretty successful, I think, in getting more women into the the Labor Party and into into government. So maybe that's something for the Liberal Party to consider. (laughs) I doubt we'll see that, but at least we've moved on to targets, which is something. Oh, targets. Yeah, you know, a little bit of change in the language. Uh, Thank you so much, Ben, for coming in. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure too. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, chatting about federal politics. And you are listening to 3RRFM. Uh, this is On Common Sense with Amy Mullins. And as promised, I have Dr Bronwyn King, who is a radiation oncologist, and she's also CEO of Tobacco Free Portfolios. And I'm absolutely delighted to have you here, Bronwyn. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me in. It's great to be with you. And... Um, Now, this is something that 
is really interesting to me. Uh, when I first met you quite a while ago now, um, you know, we were sitting in a cafe talking about your story of how you discovered that your uh, superannuation was actually investing in tobacco. So first I want to talk about your personal context in this issue because you deal with, um, you know, cancer patients um, with a range of cancers, some of which are caused by tobacco. What exact, like, what is the proportion of those patients who you're dealing with and how did you, I guess, become caught up in this issue? Well, the story is, as you said, it was sort of an accidental story. Um, I graduated from Melbourne University in 1999. I did my intern year and then the very first job I was asked to do was to work for three months on the lung cancer ward at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. And I was just a brand new shiny doctor, you know, planning to save the world, the very (laughs) typical bright-eyed young doctor. Yeah. And uh, I walked into this job and most of my patients were smokers or ex-smokers Um, It really struck me that nearly all of them had started smoking when they were children or in their early teens, and the vast majority of them had tried to quit at some point. And despite living in this beautiful country with access to really sophisticated medicines, nearly every single one of my patients died. And everyone knows tobacco's bad, but when you see the impact firsthand, it just left this terribly deep impression, and it's something I've never got over. That was a long time ago, and I still just can't accept that we seem to accept this as a community. And I think it's not really seen in the community so much. So it, it, it really stuck in my head. Ten years later, I was a qualified oncologist and finally got around to buying a house with my husband. And mm-hmm. we sat down with the accountant and the accountant said, look, you two need to sort out your money. How much do you have in your super fund? And I had to admit, I'd never thought about superannuation at all. I knew it existed, but that was about it. And so prompted by that discussion, I organised to sit down with the representative for the super fund for all of the employees at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. And uh, it was over coffee again. We sat down, we had a coffee at the cafeteria at the hospital. He showed me how much money I had. We had a nice little chat. I had a latte, shook his hand, walked away. The meeting had finished. And completely as an afterthought, I rushed back to the table. I said, oh, by the way, was I meant to tell you what to do with that money? And he said, no, 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 it's completely taken care of. You're in the default option. And I said, option? Does that mean there are other options? And uh, he looked at me, rolled his eyes and said, oh, well, there is this one greenie option for people who have a problem with investing in mining alcohol or tobacco. And then there was silence. And I said, did you just say tobacco? And he said, yes. And I said, so you're telling me I'm currently investing in tobacco? And he said, oh, yes, everyone is. And uh, that was my moment. That was March of 2010 and that's really when I found out that um, despite my work being um, a job where I was trying very hard to help people suffering as a result of tobacco, uh, my own money was being invested in tobacco companies and had been for more than 10 years. That's quite amazing, really, and what a moment to find out. It's hard to understand, really, because you're seeing the human cost and, as you say, suffering of people who, you know, potentially a lot of them, when they started smoking, weren't even aware of the health effects of tobacco. And it's one of those things which, um, you know, is really difficult to quit. And there are a whole range of reasons why um, people can get hooked on that. Mm. Um, And so... In this moment of realisation, what then spurred you on to do something? Because a lot of people would just go, okay, well, I'll take the greenie option then and I'll make sure that at least my portion of money is going to the right companies that fit with my values. But what really 
spurred you to to take on this um, really huge task? Well, to be honest, I probably didn't know how huge it was at the time. (laughs) Um, But I just thought it was, I knew it wasn't just going to be me who was disappointed about that. I thought all of the doctors and nurses at our hospital at the Peter Mac would be very disturbed to think that without them knowing their money was being invested in the companies that make products that resulted in extraordinary suffering of our patients. So I really thought that it was a much bigger issue than just me. And the more I learnt, I realised it wasn't actually just our super fund. It was really how all super funds operated. A little bit of money from all super funds was being invested in tobacco. And then I realised it wasn't just super funds. It was banks, insurers and fund managers and sovereign wealth funds. And and then I realised, of course, it wasn't just Australia. It was the entire global finance sector that's completely tangled up with the tobacco industry. And I think I thought I was in a really unique position being an oncologist. And I just thought my patients would have expected me to do more than just Um, maybe change my fund. I thought that um, I just had all of these patient experiences and all of these stories of my patients and I thought that I should at least have a go at trying to use those stories to change things. Um, And so it just happened that um, a few weeks later I was due to give a presentation to all of the radiation oncologists, everyone is every so often, and it was just, it was my turn a few weeks later. And instead of presenting an interesting patient case, I decided to present this. This was my presentation. And the head of radiation oncology uh, said immediately, you need to tell the CEO. So I did. I told the CEO of Peter Mac and 24 hours later, he rang me back and he said, look, I'd like you to present to the chief executive officer in the investment team at our super fund. At the time, it was called Health Super. And uh, that kicked off the first of what has become thousands of conversations with finance leaders, not just in Australia, but now across the world. And uh, we keep finding great finance leaders who have really just not thought about this. And when they are informed with the facts, they're also alarmed. And they realise that, in fact, they not just can be part of the solution to global tobacco control, but in fact, we need them to be, they must be part of the solution. The world's on track for one billion tobacco-related deaths this century. One billion. There's only seven billion of us. So this is one of the greatest public health challenges of our time. And in medicine, we talk about this as the global tobacco epidemic. Now, that's not a word you throw around, but this is the time to use it. And it's really the message I try to bring to finance leaders is that the health sector cannot fix the problem of tobacco. We're doing everything we can. We offer the best care. We've got researchers everywhere doing everything. We've got educators educating our youth about trying, you know, to really encourage them not to start smoking. We've got governments all across the world. 180 governments have signed up to the UN Tobacco Treaty and they're implementing policy. So all of that is happening. Yet in the last 12 months, 7 million people died early as a result of tobacco. So that's not enough, believe it or not. It's not enough. If we don't have the support of the finance sector, we cannot fix the problem. And um, and I think finance leaders really understand that. They see that when they're made aware of the scale of the problem and they keep uh, being motivated to change. And, and so in the last, since tobacco-free portfolios began, we've seen almost $8 billion be redirected away from investment in the tobacco industry. We've worked with sovereign wealth funds, banks, fund managers, pension funds, um, in Australia globally. So we've, we've seen tobacco-free moves now in uh, nine different countries and we really just hope to continue to get the conversation going and um, when people make informed decisions, it's, uh, 
it's really amazing to see the progress we can make together. Definitely. And let's talk about the process that you undertake to convince fund managers, CEOs, boards of huge superannuation funds. And let's just preface this by saying that superannuation needs to be quite risk averse because it's people's retirement income and savings. So often they'll be investing in blue chip stocks and make sure that it's, you know, diverse so that if there are any major shocks from companies or around the world that people are protected. Um, So, you know, we're already starting off with some people who would generally have to approach things in a risk averse manner. You've out, you outline in, in some of your um, talks and arguments um, about the kind of convincing reasons why people change their minds, why these CEOs and boards actually decide, yes, that makes a lot of sense to me and now I need to take action and divest completely. What are some of those arguments in the discussions that you're having at this high level? I think the most important thing is to um, come up with a framework that can really help justify why it is reasonable to take such a strong position on tobacco. By and large, finance leaders don't like applying exclusions. It's quite a new thing to apply exclusions at all. But tobacco has really provided the ultimate case study because once informed with the facts, you do get a bit of a knot in your stomach and think, for goodness sake, why are we actually doing that? <laughs> but more simple than just just saying it's, it's wrong and something that needs to change, um, we do need to be a bit more sophisticated in our thinking. And so I do work with finance leaders to suggest that they draw up a framework. And the starting point for me is simply asking three simple questions of any company in which you might invest money. The first question is, Does the product or can the product that's made by the company be used safely? And no is is the answer for tobacco. Zero is the only safe number of cigarettes for a human being. So it's very clear. The second question is, is the problem caused by the company so significant on a global scale that it is subject to a UN treaty or convention? Yes is the answer for tobacco. There is a UN tobacco treaty ratified by uh, 180 countries. And the third question is this really interesting concept. It's kind of the buzzword in finance at the moment. It's called engagement. (laughs) And many financial organisations genuinely want to do the right thing and they're increasingly aware of their responsibility more broadly. And they want to sit down with the companies where they own stock and they want to engage with those companies and encourage those companies to do better things. And so the question is, can engagement be effective? And the answer for tobacco companies is no. Engagement with the tobacco industry is futile. Um, the only acceptable outcome would be that the tobacco industry ceases its primary business. There's really nowhere for it to go. And in fact, when I was quite new to this um, and took a global step and I was working overseas in in London with finance leaders, I got challenged on that. And it struck me because in Australia, no one had ever challenged me for several years. And then overseas, people said, no, 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 we've got this under control. We're engaging with the tobacco industry. And I said, really? I said, well, what, what do you do? And they said, oh, well, they're improving the number of women on the board. <laughs> and then they said, oh, they're, they're improving the transparency of their executive pay or their audit accountability is sharpening up. And I sort of said, well, hang on, what about the only metric that matters here? The impact on human health and, and suffering. And When I got home from that trip, I reached out to all of these tobacco control leaders who've been doing this for 40 years all around the world, and I said to them all, have I got this wrong? Can anyone give me uh, an example of where engagement's worked? And there was just a thunderous silence. And, in fact, um, Australia's one of our real um, incredible leaders on tobacco control, Mike Daub, Professor Mike Daub from Western Australia, 
he gave me this beautiful quote, which I often use, which is, where engagement has in- occurred with the tobacco industry, it has invariably been counterproductive. So engagement doesn't work. And when you put that together, you can really see that with tobacco companies, you're either in or you're out. And, um, and increasingly, uh, we are seeing uh, financial institutions everywhere want to be out. <laughs> mm. And do you think there are many, when you, like when you're having these discussions, are there many disagreements or points of contestation around what you're presenting to, to people? I think um, I have seen probably, you know, five to ten common questions that come up all of the time and um, they're very reasonable. I mean, while the concept does seem simple, there are some very reasonable issues and nitty-gritty that needs to be sorted out. But um, we have collected a global advisory council that includes 15 CEOs of different global financial organisations and all of them are happy to collaborate and help and share solutions. And so this is a really key point. There is no barrier Uh, to which there is not a good solution. Mm. And we're really happy to get out there and share the information with everybody so that we can all get to the same point, which is to be tobacco-free. Yeah, it's working through the detail that's the only minor difficulty. Yeah, and there there are lots of little things. So a funny example recently was that um, I was in a big bank in Europe about a year ago and someone said, look, why why are you so harsh on tobacco companies? (laughs) Because they get great ratings for their environmental, social and governance characteristics. So this is also another buzzword from the yeah. finance sector. It's called ESG, Environment, Social and Governance Ratings. <laughs> and there's all these rating agencies everywhere that rate companies, all sorts of companies, according to these criteria. And they showed me and they said, look, for example, here are some tobacco companies and one very big uh, multinational tobacco company got an A for social impact. And I, I sort of put my hand up. I couldn't quite look at it. And I said, look, I don't know what's going on there, but that, that cannot possibly be accurate. Um, you know, this company makes products that, that kill people, that <laughs> you can't be giving A's. Mm. Um, and it came to be that most of these rating agencies only compare tobacco companies to tobacco companies. And even though they all get very low absolute scores, the rating system mandates that the one with the least worst score gets an A. Right. It's all so relative. It's all relative. But it makes no sense. When human no. beings see an A, we think that's good. Yes, We're trained to think that's good. Yes. Anyway, the most exciting thing is that in May this year, one of the big rating agencies revised this methodology, the first one to do so. They downgraded all tobacco companies and they've said they're no longer appropriate for um, what they call best of sector ratings. They will no longer um, be categorised like that so that this misleading information will no longer be out there. So we can really see how all parts of the finance sector interrelate Mm. and that's really where this work has become very big (laughs) because we need to be speaking to everybody so that across the board we can all make these transitions together. Exactly. And also you're talking to governments as well because governments have a role to play. Not only have, as you say, 180 countries ratified um, these treaties, but also particularly um, Australia, has implemented one of these reforms around ensuring that they as a country don't invest in tobacco. You know, an example would be the Future Fund. That's right, yes. Yeah, so Australia is out there leading in that sense. Um, the other countries who have implemented that particular um, that particular area is New Zealand, Norway and Ireland. Um, you know, what is Australia doing uniquely that uh, the rest of the world could be doing better on in this space? Well, you've mentioned one of them and on yeah. that particular note, you're right, you're 
referring to there are a couple of provisions in the UN Tobacco Treaty that have received very little attention. And there specifically is a clause that says that government institutions and their bodies should not be investing in the tobacco industry. So that includes sovereign wealth funds like the Future Fund and it also includes public pension funds. Now, that provision has simply not been um, put in front of finance leaders across the world. And when we connect with them, they're usually very alarmed. (laughs) So again, I was meeting in France with the CEO of the biggest public pension fund there and he just said to, he said to me, are, are you telling me that I'm currently investing in breach of a UN treaty to which my country is a signatory? And I sort of went, wow, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he, since, um, he has since implemented a tobacco-free investment plan and he's on our global advisory council. Mm-hmm. And so we are working with these sovereign wealth funds and public funds to really say that um, in line with the treaty, we ask you to take a deep look at this because there are, in fact, uh, requirements there. Um, in addition, Australia is really leading in, um, in plain packaging. I think that's the other real key element here. Plain packaging has now been in Australia for five years. I think many of us would find it hard to imagine that those colourful packets that we used to see, certainly when I grew up, that's all that there was. But, you know, I've got two little boys and I, I'm very pleased that they will never see those. Well, certainly not in Australia. Um, I was in France last year on the day that they became the equal second country with the UK to implement plain packaging and there's about another 20 countries that are soon to follow suit and that really will set a new global standard in in tobacco control. Mm. When I go to uh, health conferences, I'm always impressed when um, I hear other people from other countries talk about how... Um, how much they admire Australia's leadership on tobacco control. We think it's normal here. It's not. We are super lucky that all shades of government have been very tough on tobacco control here. And as a result, we as as Australians living now really have um, reaped the benefits of that. We have amongst the lowest smoking rates in the world. So it's 12.2%. That was the most recent analysis that came out. Um, with the exception of Brunei, where the king of Brunei banned the sale of tobacco, so they're about 4%. But uh, apart from Brunei, yeah. we're the lowest, uh, that's the lowest rate in the world. So there's a lot to be thankful from, f- for about living here, um, but also many other countries are trying to follow our lead. Exactly. And you're talking about plain packaging and the effect it might have on younger people. Um, it's quite well proven that young people are the, the most likely to be starting to smoke. What is the? What are the stats on that? Well, the one that really gets me is that um, the average age that Australians start smoking is 16 years and two months. And we don't have data from every country in the world, but we believe that is the oldest average age in the entire world. So everywhere else, the average age is younger. So in fact, adults very rarely start smoking. It's kids, it's children who start smoking. And um, that's something I think the whole community really needs to reflect on. We also need to think that in Australia, 90% of our current smokers regret that they started. 40% of smokers try to quit every year. And yet we know that cigarettes have been manipulated so that um, people obtain more nicotine per cigarette 
than ever before. So it's never been more difficult to quit. And I have watched my patients really struggle with this. Mm. Um, Obviously, my patients have a cancer diagnosis, so they're extremely motivated to quit. But even then, it's unbelievably hard. Nicotine is one of the most addictive substances to the human body and um, many people are tragically addicted to it. Exactly. And this is not about um, putting the blame on on people who are addicted to nicotine through tobacco at all. This is about putting the responsibility on companies who, you know, make tobacco and also those who are investing in it. Mm, That's right. So I think um, it's really important that, you know, we convey a more... Um, supportive message to our smokers. It's really important we support our smokers to try to quit. It takes an average of seven quit attempts. And so everybody in that person's community needs to help them get through what is an extremely difficult process. Um, So we definitely need to support our smokers more. I think think the stigmatisation of our smokers has probably gone too far. And in fact, we need to uh, really acknowledge that most of them regret that they've started. So why don't we just help them quit? Exactly. Um, Now, Bronwyn, let's talk about the global picture in terms of these other pension funds and also insurance uh, companies as well and what they've been doing since this movement has really just been growing over the last seven years or so. I mean, where are we at now in terms of the global picture Um, Well, some of the big movements globally in the last uh, 14 months, the biggest one was AXA. So the global insurance giant AXA decided to go tobacco-free. It was a delight working with them. They made the decision in precisely three weeks. Wow, that's huge for a (laughs) major corporation. A major corporation, yeah, it took three (laughs) weeks, that's it. And we then um, worked with them to make this beautiful announcement event and they announced that they were getting rid of $2.6 billion dollars worth of investment in the tobacco industry. So it was uh, it was a very good day. Yeah. And um, they we've continued a, a relationship with AXA. They helped to um, create the world's first investor statement on tobacco. And I was recently back in Paris for the launch of that. We had 50 of the world's biggest uh, financial organisations that control $4 trillion combined coming out saying tobacco is a major problem and we really call on... Uh, we support governments in... Um, their implementation of the UN Tobacco Treaty and we call on people to be more aware of this issue. So that was a very exciting moment. Um, Otherwise, we've seen a couple of big banks recently announce that they will not lend money to tobacco companies. So the Dutch Bank, AB and AMRO, Bank of New Zealand, they will no longer lend money to tobacco companies and we're working with um, another six or seven big banks um, and uh, and we're very pleased with progress there uh, regarding the same issue. Um, Aviva, the UK insurer, um, they just went tobacco-free last month. They got rid of $1.6 billion worth of tobacco investment. And so we're really just seeing, um, I guess, a bit of a snowball happening where financial organisations around the world are becoming aware of this issue, learning about it and reconsidering their commercial relationships with the tobacco industry. In, Mm. In 2017, it's really hard to justify why you would continue a relationship like that. No, exactly. And one of the other concerning aspects, and it's really hard to quantify, is the cost of tobacco. Not only just the human cost, the emotional toil that it takes on people who suffer and also their family members, but also the um, the tax burden that it creates in the health system. Um, you know, what have the, the estimates that we've seen actually revealed about the cost? Well, globally, the figure, well, it's quite funny. Last year, there were two estimates of the global cost of tobacco on the world's 
health budgets. And one of them was one trillion US dollars and the other was three trillion US dollars. So no one agrees on what it is, but I think we should just <laughs> yeah. at least agree it's in the order of trillions. trillions. It's a lot of money. Yeah. And the business model of the tobacco industry at the moment is that it externalises all of those costs. So you and I pay for that. Our governments pay, communities pay, yet they internalise and privatise all the profit. Now, that business model is something that is being challenged globally. So if we look at, there's a very interesting legal case at the moment in Quebec province where the people of Quebec sued the tobacco industry to recoup those health costs. And the findings were for the people of Quebec in 2015. The tobacco industry was ordered to pay 15 billion US dollars. It's on appeal, but the appeal is due to be handed down in the next few months. And that will be fascinating because it will set a very interesting precedent if that is upheld. Um, Other Canadian provinces are looking at doing the same thing to recoup costs, but it really sort of sends a, a, a very interesting message. Why should any of us be paying for the costs of the tobacco industry? That business model would not be acceptable if it was launched today. So why do we why do we accept it? Mm, exactly. And one of the other um, global issues around this, which is quite hidden, it's not very visible, is that in developing countries, this is where um, smoking is most taken up. But it's also where there's a cost to children who are actually um, employed either by force or because they need to, because they're in poverty, um, to actually work in tobacco fields. So there's a child labour aspect to um, tobacco broadly. Obviously, not every company would be linked to that, but just in a broad sense, Mm -hmm. um, children are engaged in this industry. What what does the picture look like at the moment? Well, it's terrible that I, I... I always say to people, I I feel terrible that I didn't know at all about the link between child labour and tobacco before I got into this. But in fact, the global tobacco industry significantly relies on child labour in the supply chain. It's very difficult to quantify things with precise statistics because Mm. the supply chains are not well documented, they're not well recorded, and different countries have got different processes. So it's very hard to know what's going on. But in a report this year from the International Labour Organisation, they stated that in tobacco growing communities, child labour was rampant. That's a direct quote from them. The US Department of Labour, they currently list 16 countries that use child labour to produce tobacco leaf. Um, Interestingly, they don't list the USA, even though there were several reports last year from reputable global human rights organisations reporting on child labour in the USA um, in tobacco growing communities. So it is something that is... um, a very important issue to discuss. And in fact, in many of the Scandinavian countries where we've been working, that issue alone has immediately uh, got the discussion of tobacco-free investment uh, prioritised on the boardroom agenda. Right. And it does actually cause sickness as well, working with tobacco. Yes, so there's an illness, which of course I've never seen living in Melbourne, Australia, but um, I'm hoping to go and visit some tobacco farms in um, the in a um, outside of Australia very soon, and um, and to see for myself. But there's an illness called green tobacco sickness, and it's an illness whereby when you touch tobacco leaf with your hands, um, you can get a nicotine poisoning through the skin. And uh, children without protective equipment, anyone without protective equipment, um, is prone to this illness and it causes um, fever, joint aches, pain, uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhoea, malaise. So it's a, it's a horrible illness and it usually requires people to stop working and have to lie down for a few days to recover. Mm. Um, and again, this 
illness is not well documented because many of these farming communities are impoverished communities with very poor access to medical care. So it's underreported, but it's believed to be um, a very common illness in uh, poor tobacco growing communities. Indeed. Now, I want to move to action because not only can financial institutions take action, but everyone, including me, can do something about this. And you've got a crowdfunding campaign happening at the moment, which really brings together not only individuals, but big companies. And I want to know what what you're doing at the moment and what the, I guess, the big picture is moving forward and, and like, obviously what we can do. Well, you're right. I think in the end, it's your money and you do have power in in determining where that money is invested. So my first thing to encourage everyone to do is to ring their super fund. Almost half of Australian super funds are now tobacco free. We're very close to going over half. It is very reasonable for you to ring them up and ask them if they're investing your money in the tobacco industry. And mm. if they are, could they please reconsider? And also um, ask if all of their options are tobacco free, not just the greeny option. That's in right. Inverted commas. That's right. You shouldn't have to find this out accidentally. You no. shouldn't have to look all you know in, in great detail through this these product disclosure statements to find you know on the eleventh page. Oh, by the way, your money's in tobacco. I think I really think we need to move beyond that. And so, the crowdfunding campaign is a solution to this problem, and that is whereby super funds that are tobacco free they sign up to be audited. We will arrange for them to be audited. If they are indeed tobacco free, they uh, will be able to adopt a badge. It's like a health. It's like a Heart Foundation tick. Really, it's called the Verified Tobacco Free. Um, badge. They can then put that on their website so that members can easily see that their money's not being invested in tobacco. The, the, the super funds themselves can be proud of this decision and we can um, encourage some more community support so that other funds will follow suit. And uh, so we're doing this crowdfunding campaign. It's on the Possible website. So it's P-O-Z-I-B-L-E. If you Google Possible and tobacco, it comes straight up. Um, and it's the first time we've really reached out to the community to see if there's support there. And I have to say, I was so happy overnight I didn't sleep very well. I've got two little boys and they were both, um, you know, very disturbing overnight. <laughs> so I wake up to check my email in the middle of the night and I saw that someone who I've never met gave a $5,000 donation Wow! Um, to just, just because they believe in the cause. And yeah. obviously we don't need $5,000 no. donations. Um, $25 would be lovely. Yeah. Um, and uh, the aim is to raise $50,000 uh, so that we can roll out this program. Um, it will take some time to go to all of the super funds and sort out the audit process and everything. And But we think it's a program that Australians deserve to have. Australians need to know where their money is invested and it's it's a very reasonable um, request in terms of being transparent mm. uh, with where people's money is being invested. And tobacco-free portfolios is a not-for-profit. So you've been working really hard, I've got to say, from looking from a distance for such a long time and um, it's great to see that you're involving the community in getting that support because this is a huge task for anyone to be undertaking, but a really important one that needs that level of detail and and obviously rigour. Yeah, I, I think that's that's it. Um, look, while it has been a lot of work, it's actually been a pleasure to do this work. I really enjoy it and I I really feel motivated by my patients day in, day out. Uh, when you see people suffering as a result of tobacco, it really makes you... It, it, it certainly makes me realise that we can't just continue with business as usual. 
that's not going to help. Um, you know, as I said, the world's on track for a billion deaths this century. We're going to have to think differently and we are going to have to draw on all sectors of society to come together to be part of this solution. And I have met so many amazing people. We also have a princess on our team. I always tell people I highly <laughs> recommend if you're trying to do something, you really should try to get a princess on your team. It's enormously helpful. Yes. So, um I've just met people I would never have otherwise met and um, been places I would never have otherwise been and it's been a fascinating journey but I know that uh, my patients would be behind me and I think the Australian community would as well. Definitely and they have been um, just looking at the response it's been in- immense and um, and I really appreciate Bronwyn that you're coming at this from such an interesting and important perspective which is not only um, you know as an advocate but as a doctor who really um, understands and the human experience of and suffering that that really happens as a result of tobacco and that you really um, empathize and understand that struggle that that every smoker I'm sure has with tobacco themselves so I think that's something that's so powerful and important absolutely it was very grounding yeah <laughs> um, to just sit there with a patient and their family and have to tell them you know very serious often very miserable news um, it really does make me want to get out there and try to change things and I really do use those patient experiences to help me I try to bring my patients figuratively into boardrooms and to presentations uh, that I give so that I can sort of, uh, you know, the only silver lining, I guess, is that uh, while their experience is terrible, that hopefully their experience can be used to change things. Exactly. Thank you so much, Bronwyn, for joining us. It's just been really wonderful to have you. And I'm so inspired by what you've been able to do. It's just amazing. Thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. And that was Dr. Bronwyn King, who is a radiation oncologist, and she's also CEO of Tobacco Free Portfolios. And as she mentioned, you can Google Possible and Tobacco, and it will show up um, straight away at the top of the feed there. And uh, you can look at the campaign. There's heaps of information about um, this issue and what's being done. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio now John Keane, who is a Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney. And he's also the author of a very well-known and quite hefty tome, The Life and Death of Democracy. Thanks, John, for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Amy. It's great to have you in Melbourne because you're going to be giving a lecture on a really interesting topic, the new global disorder and the rise of despotism. Now, I would like to explore this and start, I guess, with the context and the history of despotism, because as you have said in other contexts, despotism is quite an old term. It's really rather old fashioned and it did die out uh, in the 19th century. And now um, you're bringing it back. So first, I I wanted to ask you about the first two phases or uses of despotism which you've uncovered and looked at and then we'll move into despotism in the 21st century and what that really means. Sure, let's do it. Uh, I am engaged in some pearl diving. You know, I want to retrieve a term that, as you say, went out of fashion sometime during the 19th century, Um, a term that has a very old history going back to at least the Greeks where the despot, the despotis, was the male head of household uh, who um, looked after, nurtured, protected women, 
children and slaves. That was the despot. Later, the term was revived in late medieval, early modern Europe to refer to a type of regime, uh, top-down power, that prevails in the East. So Europeans who use this term uh, use it in a very Orientalist way. So despotism is what happens out there in the East in what is today India and in China. And the idea is that those despotisms uh, tend to be violent. They produce fear among their subjects. And they are forms of organized bullying. This is not what I mean. Then in, as you mentioned, in the middle of the 18th century, something remarkable happens. I'm sorry for this potted history of the term, but it's important to understand. In the middle of the 18th century, beginning with a figure named Montesquieu, the language of despotism becomes revolutionary. It refers, and it flourished during the American Revolution and during the French Revolution, it refers to a type of top-down power uh, that is not just an Eastern problem, but is also a Western problem. And what's scary for those who use it is that despotism, uh, those who rule despotisms, practice the art of cultivating loyalty of their subjects. Despotisms are systems of voluntary servitude. And the great fear um, of those who spoke about despotism is that this would take root in, for example, European monarchies uh, and uh, the monarchy of King George III um, and had to be thrown off. And that language of despotism, uh, as I say, was central to understanding and the dynamics of the American Revolution. The term then uh, kind of disappeared. It became obsolete. I want to revive it for reasons that I hope we can talk about. Exactly. And that other phase that you're just talking about there, it was used, as you say, as a weapon against arbitrary power. And we see this now, um, this use of arbitrary power in the 21st century uh, version of despotism that you're talking about. But I'd just like to draw out one final distinction before we move ahead, and that will hopefully lead us in there, is that Montesquieu, who you mentioned, he wrote L'Esprit des Lois. <laughs> Spirit of the Laws. Spirit of the Laws. And he basically was saying that these despotisms were reckless and then were really causing their own downfall. They dig their own graves. Definitely. So now you're saying in this 21st century despotism, my understanding is they're much smarter and better able to adapt and reform themselves yes. to maintain and survive. Could we now move into despotism and your conception of it, utilising it? And why are we talking about despotism instead of some of these other really broad brushstroke terms such as authoritarianism or totalitarianism mm -hmm. or fascism? There are quite a few questions in that question. So let me just briefly unpack them. Montesquieu, yes, thought that um, despotisms would dig their own grave. Um, later thinkers, political writers, were less sure of that because of uh, the way that despotisms nurture uh, support from below. Uh, paradoxically, you know, that top-down power could win the loyalty of uh, its subjects. And But the Montesquieu point 
still applies to uh, some of these despotisms that we're talking about. Um, in the Central Asian republics, the one example that leaps out of the record is Nyatsov, who got elected initially with 98% of a vote when the Soviet Union collapsed in Tajikistan. He then went on to declare himself the great leader. He rewrote the, the Quran in local language uh, languages. He, uh, he ordered his cabinet to take five-mile walks. Um, he banned all dogs in the capital city on the grounds that they're putrid. He banned car radios because he was sure, he alleged, that people were having bad-mouthing him using uh, radio music to, to camouflage uh, their complaints. And when the Met Office uh, got the weather forecast wrong, he sacked the whole lot of them. So there are these crazy moments uh, where things happen that um, are understandable in the terms of Montesquieu. But yes, uh, my idea is that these regimes of the 21st century, Russia, China, Central Asian republics, the Gulf states like Saudi, Belarus, Hungary, possibly Poland, possibly Turkey now on the path, are regimes where those who rule uh, try to reduce the recklessness. They try to learn how better to govern and to do so by uh, winning the loyalty of their subjects. And in this sense, I think these regimes are not uh, understandable as kleptocracies, you know, regimes where a small group steals wealth and power from the population. They are not Senator John McCain, former presidential Republic, uh, Republican candidate, uh, famously described Putin's Russia as a gas station masquerading as a state. I think um, that kind of language, a talk of them as autocracies, um, kleptocracies, and so on, is mistaken. It just doesn't come to terms with the way these regimes work and why it is that they're more durable than we uh, might imagine. Mm. On the word authoritarianism, that is the prevailing term. It's actually to used to describe these regimes. You know, China is an authoritarian regime. Putin's Russia is a system of authoritarianism. Actually, if you look at the origins of that word, it's Samuel Huntington, the American political scientist, uh, around 1970. What I don't like about the term is, first of all, that it uses the United States as the measure, liberal democracy, <laughs> with an American accent. It, it uses it as the measure of things. The things baseline. Not, things are not going very well in the United States. Mm. You know, that democracy um, is riddled with dysfunctions. But the real problem I have with that term, um, and listeners might have not thought this through, is that that term authoritarianism contrasted authoritarian regimes with democracies. And the difference for Sam Huntington was that in democracies, uh, there are free and fair elections, and in authoritarian systems, there are none. Actually, one of the surprising things about all of these despotisms uh, with uh, one or two exceptions where women are not entitled to vote, as in Saudi, 
is that all of them practice elections and on a scale of integrity they are quite high. Of course, there's a lot of rigging of results, but they, they hold elections, including in China, where more than a million elections have been held since the end of the 1980s. And this is one of the mechanisms that allow those to rule claim credibly in their view that they are governing in the name of the people. One of the qualities of all of these despotisms is that everything that happens is done in the name of a sovereign people. Uh, the people are s- supposed uh, to be the source of power, the source of authority. Um, that's the way Xi Jinping speaks. That's the way Putin uh, speaks. That's the way all of the despots of the Central Asian republics speak. And so for those two reasons, I think the term authoritarianism is actually a misdescription of the much more complicated uh, dynamics uh, that, um, that have to be understood because they are increasingly a global force. And if you include China in the category of despotism, then what we're witnessing is the return of China to the global stage. We're uh, witnessing the spread of its power and its shaping of global institutions. And it's a fact And we shall have to come to terms with it, and therefore it's important that we understand how that system works internally. Mm. And you say that they're not defective democracies either, even though they have democratic elements or they have styles that, that approach democracy they really aren't. And I want to draw out some of the key characteristics mm. that you see as making up this 21st century despotism. And some of those that you've mentioned are around periodic elections that, yes. that make it appear as though there's a democracy. There are also other characteristics you describe that really seem to be ways that they induce the voluntary servitude of the the people, the sovereign people, to actually become the passive you know, subjects that you you're describing. Can you talk about some of the key characteristics that you believe are most revealing and also contradictory? Sure. Um, these regimes uh, try to reduce and to camouflage violence. They are not, in contrast to the totalitarianisms of the 1920s and 30s and the Soviet uh, form of Stalinism that persisted well into the 50s, they are not systems that induce fear into the hearts of the bulk of the population. Uh, The middle classes of these despotisms feel that actually life has improved, that their levels of dignity have risen. Putin, no doubt, has helped to spread that view uh, through significant parts of the population. And when violence happens, as it does in Russia, sometimes it's crude, you know, um, nuclear-contaminated materials put into a cup of tea to deal with a dissident, but most of the violence happens uh, at the local level and in camouflage form, and it's usually reported as the work of, quote-unquote, thugs. There's also the point that, um, to repeat, you know, all of these regimes, uh, those who rule do so in the name of the people. What could be more democratic than that? Uh, That is, after all, isn't it, the idea of, uh, the whole idea of democracy, that people govern themselves. That's what these rulers say. Of course, it's a sort of phantom democracy. Um, They govern through opinion polls. Uh, There are around 800 opinion polling agencies in China. Quite a few of them are independent of the party. And the party 
develops policies at city level, for example, using these public opinion polling uh, mechanisms to gauge uh, public reactions to their proposed policies. In Guangzhou, there is the famous case of introducing parking restrictions in a city of you know, 35 million people. Um, the party does it by contracting an independent public opinion polling agency. And one last example, um, internet policy. I would say the, that Iran and China are at the cutting edge of the way that those who govern are uh, using the internet to control the internet. But it's not understandable. Internet policy is not understandable as um, in terms of the old censorship model. Yes, there is deep uh, uh, mining of key words using software to eliminate words from WeChat and uh, Weibo and so on. And yes, um, there is a rounding up of internet dissidents and sometimes their disappearance or imprisonment. But internet policy in China, as in Russia, as in um, more than a few of these despotisms, is one where digital storms happen. Users of the internet bellyache, and the regime learns from this. So the internet is used as a kind of early warning device. Uh, the internet is used to promote the opinions of uh, the, those who rule. And even the employment of people, they're called 50-cent bloggers in China, uh, whose job is to deal with rumors and to combat contrary opinions that could have the potential to destabilize the regime. So, uh, you know, all of these techniques are remarkable examples of the, of, of the attempt by those who rule to rule more intelligently, to learn how better to rule, knowing that um, the old Mao maxim, you know, political power grows out of the barrel of the gun, is not true. That you can only secure top-down power for a short term through martial law or through violence and terrorizing the population much better. Um, this is the point of many of these innovations. Much better is to rule by acknowledging that it is people's support for power that is the basis of durable government. These rulers understand that very well, and that would be, for example, one way of understanding this anti-corruption campaign that's going on uh, under Xi Jinping. It's a purge, and it's a purge, of course, of the enemies of, of Xi. But it is also a strategy for dealing with the widespread feeling among the Chinese population that corruption has gone too far. And it helps to explain why it is that, according to the polls, maybe 80% of Chinese people feel that this is a good thing. And you will hear people say it's better if there's a cancer in the body politic, it's better to cut out you know, that particular cancer than, than let the whole body politic die. So despotisms of the 21st century are experiments in cultivating voluntary servitude of the population. Voluntary servitude. And it seems to be quite effective, is it not? Well, time will tell. Uh, and it's true that these regimes have built into them some structural problems, mainly to do with lack of accountability, with the arbitrary power 
that riddles these systems. How dangerous the banking system, the banking and credit system of China is for the durability of the whole polity is, I think, an important question. We don't know exactly how this banking credit sector works. But if it were to collapse, then the whole regime uh, would be endangered. But my hunch, based on the fieldwork I'm doing, the research, the reading, and thinking through these regimes, which I'm calling despotisms, is that they seem to me to have a great deal of durability. And the shocking thing for us should be that they are now a serious alternative to power-sharing constitutional democracy of the kind that our parents and grandparents enjoyed. Yes. And you have said that this region and these despotisms are becoming the centre, if not already the geopolitical centre of the world. And now with the election of Donald Trump, we've seen America take a step back on many issues where they would normally act quite unilaterally or be the leader and and really initiate action. Donald Trump at uh, these major summits such as the G20 seems to be quite passive in his body language, but also what he's doing on on key areas, particularly not wanting to uh, sanction North Korea for their testing of intercontinental ballistic missiles. So my question is, now that we have China and Russia and other major regions as part of this Eurasia, you might call it, or or some other terminology, now that we've seen that rise of, of this region and the backing down of the United States, where are we at? You say that this could become a successful model. Do you think this could become a successful model in America? When I first started uh, uh, some years ago to uh, put my thoughts together about um, these regimes, you know, draw them together and and ask what they have in common, we've discussed some of those common features. I thought that I was uh, mainly dealing with, yeah, the rise of a serious competitor uh, to uh, power sharing, I call them monetary democracies. Um, A lot has changed in the last 24 months. And what is happening in the United States, uh, what has happened in Greece, uh, what is happening in Brexit Britain, uh, what is going on in little Hungary and much bigger Poland, seem to me all of that is understandable in terms of the possible growth and the spread of despotic power in the sense that I'm describing it. I mean, let's for a moment harbor the spooky thought that Donald Trump, who's now preparing for re-election, gets elected for a second term. This uh, is a type of politics that appeals to the people. It's clearly a protection of the very wealthy. He promised to drain the swamp, but you know, the cabinet around him is the highest concentration of millionaires and billionaires ever in the history of presidential government. And let's imagine that he manages to dismantle or seriously to weaken the judiciary, the FBI, um, the federal scrutiny bodies that um, are designed to restrain the power of arbitrary power inside the federal government. Let's imagine that he succeeds in wearing down journalists 
that fake news lot. And let's imagine that he manages to widen the support base. It's currently around a third of the population likes him and thinks he's doing a great job. Let's imagine that he expands that. What kind of United States would begin to crystallize? Well, I think, and it's uh, for me a very surprising and disturbing element, that I think that you could, dis- you could understand this in terms of the problem of despotism. Uh, that, and it helps explain you know, his fascination with Putin and the fact that you know, despotisms interfere increasingly with actually existing democracies, as they, it seems, clearly did in the presidential election campaign. Let's imagine that that American dynamic unfolds, then the United States that is written about in textbooks called a liberal democracy would not anymore be describable in those terms. And I think it's more, much more than a problem of authoritarianism. I think it's, I think it's despotic because one of the things that's happening and he's a, a master at this, is, is nurturing through a whole variety of techniques, gaslighting people, sowing the seeds of confusion, speaking about making America great again. I mean, all of this is a politics of nurturing a kind of loyalty in the population that is willing to serve uh, him, and that is what I'm calling voluntary servitude. And that we should be uh, watching for. We should be disturbed by it. If you're interested in, if you have in your heart some feelings for power sharing and respect for complexity and, and humility. And if you take seriously the dangers of arbitrary power, the Greeks worried about hubris. You know, the problem with arbitrary power, the problem with too much power is that it leads people in any setting very often men, to um, do foolish things, to take stupid decisions, and in the worst case, become blinded by their own power. This is hubris, and it's a word that, um, you know, bedevils these despotisms too. But you can imagine an American democracy that is corrupted by this trend, where we will look back on things like his attacks on independent institutions, Trump, or things like, yeah, why wouldn't my daughter sit in my seat at the G20 meeting, um, where we look back on the dynasty quality of the Trump administration, and we will see in retrospect that, you know, these years, 2016, 17, 18, put the United States on the road to a new form of despotism that, by the way, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French aristocrat who came to America in um, around 1830 and wrote one of the classic books in the field of democracy, a two-volume democracy in America. His great fear is that the United States, that the democracy of the United States would would unravel that it would that it would drift into a new kind of despotism where large numbers of Americans simply didn't care anymore about being active citizens they just let them 
govern. Uh, well, that's quite possibly on the political agenda, I think, in the United States, but not only in the United States. Yes, and that they were more distracted or occupied by material consumption, I think was one of his other... Yes, elements. and one of the features of these despotisms is that they cultivate a shopping mall mentality. Mm. You know, Saudi women go shopping in, uh, in Beirut, where they take off their chador and they drink and they dance. And all of these despotisms have cultivated a kind of culture of consumption uh, whose logic is, you know, let us govern, let us rule. You pay attention to your daily lives, to your children, lovers, families, and your work. Don't complain. If you do complain, just complain in private. You can do all the bellyaching you like, but let us get on and rule. So that privatization of people's lives, uh, the sense that you know people should not be actively interested in public affairs, that's something Tocqueville feared, mm. and it's something that is a structural feature. It's a characteristic of all of these despotisms. Mm. And just finally, picking up that Trump... Um, prediction or estimated guess at the moment. When we look at the Republicans who are propping him up, would that clearly dominate um, the House that could impeach him if they wanted? And that's why many commentators are saying Trump will never be impeached. Do you think this is also some form of voluntary servitude or hubris in the Republican Party and those who are elected Republicans? Well, uh, yes, uh, is the short answer. I think um, their motives, the Republican uh, uh, congressmen and women, um, have mixed motives. Um, some of them fear the loss of their seats if they were to stand up to him. Um, all of them must lie in bed at night awake wondering about the dangers of the collapse of the Republican machine, though he's not a straightforward Republican. Some of them actively cheer him, but I would say there's been too little discussion about another reason why they, for the moment won't initiate impeachment proceedings. And it is to do with the fact of the chaos, the, the gaslighting um, quality of Trump. Unpredictability, saying wild things, those tweets that everybody, you know, follows um, as if, you know, journalists just hang on his every word. All of that is very functional for camouflaging the things that are going on under the radar screen, underreported, that are pretty serious. We now know that uh, in the offices of budget scrutiny and supervision of federal departments, Trump has frozen the appointment of directors of those departments. Um, around half of them are becoming dysfunctional. He wants that. He wants to actually weaken the push and pull that federal departments um, have, their, their role in active policymaking. Or another example, Foggy Bottom, as it's called, the State Department's headquarters, we're learning that Tillerson, Secretary of State, um, is actually not meeting with departmental heads. He is not engaging with the very staff whose job is to uh, uh, 
generate and fine-tune the foreign policy of an empire. I mean, this all is happening, and it's happening because there's this, you know, this hubbub, it's this hullabaloo, it's this razzmatazz that surrounds the presidency that is actually very functional for this, you know, this dismantling of structures and this transformation of American democracy. So that's worrying. Mm, it's very disturbing. Thank you, John, for bringing Pleasure, in Amy. so many poignant points and to actually open up our minds as to a new way of looking at these regimes and also American politics. I hope you have a great trip and lecture tonight. Thank you very much. No nightmares among those who were listening, please. <laughs> And yes, you are listening to 3RRFM and this is Uncommon Sense uh, with Amy Mullins. I have with me uh, on the phone Jeffrey or Jeff Maslin and he's written a book, um, really interesting work and it's called uh, An Uncertain Future. Australian bird life in danger, and it's out through Hardy Grant Books, and um, it's really interesting. It takes us on a journey um, through uh, looking at the status of birds in Australia and also um, the threats that they face, as well as some of the fascinating characteristics of different uh, species of birds and uh, how intelligent they are, particular species, including uh, corvids. So I'm really excited to chat with you, Jeff, and Thanks so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure, Amy. Jeff, you've um, you've written this book. Uh, it's just come out, and I guess I'll, I'll start with the broad context, um, and then we'll work our way into the detail. Um, first of all, you talk about uh, how. 898 officially recorded bird species are spread across this continent, being Australia, as well as its offshore islands and territories. That's uh, how many birds are unique only to Australia? Because I believe we have quite a special position. Uh, yes, that, uh, that, that's true. Um, a number of those um, out of that 900 or, or so uh, are introduced species, but, but basically, uh, as a rough figure, about 800 or so um, are endemic, are based in Australia and not known elsewhere unless they've been introduced. It's quite amazing to think, and I guess that's why um, often uh, tourists are attracted to Australia is its unique um, native flora and fauna. And uh, and we, you talk about uh, one of the most um, famous, I guess, uh, birds. There are many, but one is the, the kookaburra, um, and it's really distinct sound and obviously also personality. Uh, and that the kookaburra has actually been in decline um, for a while, and I mean, anecdotally, uh, I I would agree because I feel as though when I'm out in the bush and in different areas such as Wilson's Prom, um, there really does seem to be less of their sound, their their song. Um, could you share with us what's happening at the moment uh, with the kookaburra? Well, of course, it, what, what's happening in Australia is a, uh, a fragment of what's happening around the world. I do make the point in, in the book that the, the global organisation BirdLife International estimates that about one in eight bird species across the globe now face extinction and, and some 220 species are at an extremely high risk. Now, the, the BirdLife International, which keeps tabs on what's actually happening around the world, says that nearly 1,400 different birds, in fact, could vanish 
from the earth because their numbers are so tiny or they occupy ranges that are too small or fragmented or their populations are in rapid decline and many of those birds live in Australia and um, so that's where one of the key points I think in this book is that um, and also in the accompanying one about um, too late the uh, we've gone past the point of saving the earth uh, is a separate um, but a companion tome to to this book about birds and they say that the, the, um, the scientists say that the earth's sixth great mass extinction is upon us um, now BirdLife Australia is just taking up that um, point about um, what appears to be declining numbers BirdLife Australia, which um, has thousands of, of uh, what they call citizen scientists who keep tabs on, go out into the bush, go around Australia and try to get uh, records of the birds that they spot, they're combined by, in the BirdLife Australia's offices um, to draw up uh, documents that indicate what's happening. And they, they say that since 1999, the odds of seeing a kookaburra have almost halved in the southeastern mainland states and even the magpie which is so common around the suburbs of australia magpie sightings have dropped by three quarters along the east coast and likewise in the in the arid parts the larger part of australia uh, the sightings of some raptor, raptors have sharply fallen compared to what they uh, used to be. The two main factors, if I may say this, is that cl uh, climate uh, is climate change and habitat clearance. They're the two main agents that appear to be at work. Yes, and you talk about uh, land clearing and, and you give one example of, well, many examples, but one in particular is uh, in Tasmania where there's been a great destruction of forests uh, around that state and it's particularly impacted upon the swift parrot um, and those uh, habitats where they're breeding. And that's largely because state and federal governments haven't intervened in this land clearing uh, issue to the extent that they should to protect them. I mean, what is the uh, current situation in terms of land clearing practice and regulation? And how is that affecting bird life in Australia? Well, the, the problem with the swift parrot and the orange-bellied parrot, which are the two of the three migratory parrots in the world, um, is that they migrate from um, Tasmania across to Victoria and South... Both, both species migrate to um, Victoria and South Australia. Uh, and then they go back to Tasmania after some months on the mainland uh, for breeding purposes but the areas where both the birds uh, have been breeding have been subject to um, forestry uh, and the Tasmanian government appears not to have taken count of the fact that the, the places where both birds in fact set up their breeding uh, places, their nesting, uh, have been subject to uh, um, deliberate destruction, forest clearing, and also uh, by people actually coming in and chopping the trees down, which happened with the swift parrots, uh, just for firewood. It's quite astounding to think that that's uh, the trade-off that we've got is uh, firewood or losing, potentially losing a uh, really important species of bird. Do you think that we um, are really realising the extent to which land clearing affects birds and truly uh, creating good enough regulations to deal with them? 
Well, you wouldn't think so that governments have that sort of concern for it because both the Queensland and the New South Wales governments have in fact lifted in recent times uh, the restrictions that they previously placed on landholders from, from, uh, from clearing land. They were previously required to obtain permission if they were uh, cutting, removing, destroying chopping down uh, certain areas of la- on, on the land that they own. But both the New South Wales government and the, that's the Liberal government in New South Wales and the Labor government in Queensland have lifted restrictions and are basically allowing landholders to uh, remove, clear their land according to what they feel is appropriate. Well, we also need to highlight um, just how significant these kinds of action or inaction is because, as you said, this uh, the sixth mass extinction is looming, and you write that the last one uh, until now happened 66 million years ago when a 10 kilometre wide asteroid struck the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and actually the after effects, as you say, killed off all the non avian, avian as in bird like dinosaurs, uh, and wiped out two thirds of all plant and animal life. I mean, that is. Uh, massive and catastrophic in scale, you know, is this sixth mass extinction really just as significant? Well, the scientists say that we are at the start of the uh, sixth mass extinction. That is to say, you know, that all, all living things, it isn't just birds and it isn't just other animals, it means human beings as well, are, are ultimately caught up in a situation where the world is facing uh, what, what's really a serious threat. Uh, um, and as, again, a major cause of that is what, what we're both doing to the planet in terms of clearance, but also because of the fact that the planet is warming because of excessive amounts of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere indeed and so yes it is serious i mean if, if it took tens of millions of years for the earth to recover from the, the effect of that asteroid striking uh, the mexico um then you know it could again uh, the biologists say mean that it would be millions of years into the future if in fact we are subject to this mass extinction of, of living things before the earth would resume again and have the kind of um, biodiversity that it it has at the moment. Yes, and we were actually talking to um, philosopher Clive Hamilton last week about uh, the Anthropocene and and humans' huge... um, you know, causation of, of a new epoch where the Earth system is changing and obviously that brings in these living things such as birds. Um, and you highlight that birds actually have a really important role to play in the environment um, and not only uh, do they pollinate and disperse seeds of plants, um, they also control pests. I mean, what, what do you think are some of the other really critical ways that birds contribute, apart from obviously being beautiful and uh, having beautiful songs and, and, you know, the things that we often take for granted? <laughs> well, yeah, they're, they're quite a quite a few um, attributes that we would want to maintain in our life, I think. I mean, yeah. 
the, uh, the great pleasure that I have living in Seaford is to wake up a morning and listen to the caroling of magpies. We don't hear kookaburras here anymore. We used to, but the kookaburra song has disappeared. But the magpies are the ones that are the most joyous to wake up to uh, of their call in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, I mean, you've, you've identified the uh, many of the... the uh, attributes that they have in in terms of continuing to maintain the um, the world as as we know it. A, a critical one you wanted to, were hoping to talk about um, corvids, but crows and other uh, uh, species that feed uh, on. Uh, dead animals, for instance, serve an extraordinarily significant role in clearing the land of uh, decaying uh, animal matter that would exist if if the birds weren't there to consume it. So they're they're garbage collectors as well. You know, they (laughs) clean up after after humans and more after what nature does is when birds fall out of the sky or kangaroos are killed on the road. The ones that uh, clean them up aren't um, the local council. It's the raptors and other birds, magpies and hawks and uh, similar uh, creatures that feed on meat that do the job of actually cleaning up that um, material. Indeed. So let's talk about corvids. Um, it's in Chapter 15 and it's about a whole group of, of uh, birds called corvidae and it includes, as you say, crows, ravens, rooks, jackdaws, jays, European magpies. Uh, I can't pronounce this one. Chocks? And nutcrackers. <laughs> well, yes, um, uh, we we basically got ravens and crows. I yeah. mean, they're, the, they're our two main spe- our two very species of corvids. Sorry, they're very visible because you often see them kind of sitting on top of a post or on the ground, as you say, foraging um, for food. So they they're often kind of really um, front of mind for me. Well, and everywhere, I guess, yes, they're a very common species. I mean, we have five main species of, of ravens, uh, two, two crows, three ravens. Uh, I, Brisbane, I think, is the probably the city in which there are tens of thousands of Torresian crows, and they make uh, they they roost in in hundreds, and they make an enormous noise first thing mm-hmm. in the morning. So they're they're most unpopular in in Brisbane, and there are a lot of people up there who think they should be cleaned out of the skies. But they they, they too are serving a, a um, important purpose in terms of that acting as uh, rubbish collectors. Indeed, and they're also, um, as the title suggests, it says the smartest birds of all, Um, and often in in particular with birds, um, intelligence can and does relate to brain size. Could you talk about um, the the brain size of corvids and just how they relate or compare to uh, humans and apes? Well, it's in the ratio of the brain to the body mass, and that's where uh, the indications are. But the neurologists that I described there who have studied uh, the the actual processes of bird brains, and particularly the corvids, um, do show that they have uh, a very high intelligence, and, and it's related in the same way as the human brain is to human intelligence. But all of the uh, the natural studies, so the uh, in their own capacity, in the way that they live, 
in overseas in all of the corvid species around the world and as well as in Australia. The studies that have been done demonstrate high intelligence, the capacity amongst these creatures, an empathetic uh, characteristic of actually birds grieving, uh, you know, at the, at the loss of one of their friends or a, uh, one bird, uh, uh, you know, effectively weeping at the death of her partner. So... They, they show signs of the same sort of compassion that humans do, as well as their capacity to consider the future, uh, the way that they many of these birds um, can store food, <clears throat> particularly in the northern hemisphere where it gets cold over winter. Uh, many of those birds that you mentioned are able to store uh, food to, to remember where it is. And also, if they believe they've been spotted when they've been caching their food, then they go back after the, the the sneak who's been keeping an eye on them disappears and go and hide the food somewhere else. So <laughs> they have that kind of intelligence of being aware of their environment, of, of uh, watching what's going on and being able to plan ahead in a, in a way that previously uh, humans thought that was a, one of the qualities that we possess. Yes, and one of the other interesting um, traits and tests that they pass, uh, particularly crows, is on self-recognition, um, which is often used as a proxy for self-consciousness. Could you share with us what that really um, means and, and just how they recognise themselves? It's a lovely example, isn't it? Yeah. Um, a lot of creatures have been... Uh, this is um, If you put... Uh, an animal in front of a mirror does it recognize itself as it's as itself or does it see it as an intruder or another member of the same species now a a tests have been done on all sorts of um, mammals and and birds uh, to 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 see whether or not they do overseas for for what the europeans call magpies which uh, which is um, simply a black and white bird which is why our birds were called magpies by the english invaders initially um, they, they've been found that if they put a, a red spot, for instance, uh, on their forehead, and the magpie, this is the Eurasian magpie, if, if uh, they see themselves in it, they recognise that the, that the red spot is actually on their forehead and yeah. will lift a claw and, and try to re- remove it. So if they show signs uh, that they identify what's in the mirror as themselves, then it does indicate that they are seeing an image that they recognise as being an image of them. Now, I, I mentioned the work of, um, of a young fellow in, uh, in Brisbane called Matt Brown, who, who's completed his PhD on the intelligence of the Teresian crows in Brisbane. One of the things that he did was to, to put, put, uh, put mirror, a mirror up in a territory of uh, a group of Teresian crows and watch what happened. He's also done it with, uh, with magpies uh, as well, and it appears that magpies, our magpies, rather like the European magpies, also have an idea that the what they're looking in the, at in the mirror is in fact a mirror of uh, image of them. When he tried it out with the crows, he found that while peewees and things actually attacked the, the creature in, that it saw in the mirror, seeing it as in, uh, another spe- member of the species that it didn't want to be in that territory, the crows looked at themselves in the mirror 
turned their head sideways, moved around and watched what the mirror image was doing, as if they had a realisation that, in fact, this is an image of them, whereas other birds behave completely differently. That's just remarkable, really, that level of observation and, in, and really comprehension. Well, indeed. And I mean, well, I think uh, humans walk... Sorry, uh, I'm just saying, yes. <laughs> thinking about the fact that we are constantly... Uh, we don't realise it. But everything that's above us is, in fact, watching carefully what, what we're doing. We're, <laughs> we're under scrutiny by millions of eyes every time we step out the front door. That is actually quite disturbing and a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually just going to add to your um, observation there that, uh, as you say... That's quite a rare thing um, in the whole animal kingdom to be able to do that because um, you've mentioned that not many species actually pass that test, including great apes, one single Asiatic elephant, dolphins and possibly other crustaceans. So, I mean, birds are very significant, these kinds of birds who, are, who have this level of intelligence. And as you say, I guess it is really um, a little bit like covert ops that uh, we actually might need to behave a bit better <laughs> be nice to think that uh, we humans would behave slightly uh, slightly better than many of us do exactly um, and I just want to touch on a really interesting um, part of your book all of it is interesting but one that stood out for me was the rainbow lorikeet because you say that um, unlike so many other species that uh, they're facing population declines actually the rainbow lorikeet is one of a number who have actually expanded in Australia and particularly in urban areas um, where the populations are growing all the time could you share with us uh, why is that happening uh, well, as far as Melbourne's concerned, uh, it's because we've actually changed the environment. Um, when when the first Europeans came across from Tasmania in 1835 and decide, Batman decided to set up a village, um, there, there were lorikeets seen apparently at that time. Uh, that's the rainbow lorikeets. Um, and then they disappeared uh, from 1920 on, and what records there are indicate that, in fact, they they are migratory. They were, if they did come down south, they would also head north in winter, so they, they, they are a migratory species. But once Melbourne became a very large city and we had roads made of bitumen and concrete footpaths and tall buildings and so on, we created what the scientists say is... is uh, an effect where the atmosphere actually stays warmer in the cities at night as well as during the day and so that the birds were attracted to that fact and could survive in a warmer environment but the larger one is that we also changed what we were putting into our garden so the 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 number of trees that um, have are flowering are suitable to nectar eating birds like the lorikeets that we created the conditions ourselves for uh, larger populations to survive here and of course people also put things out for them um, which the seed-eating birds and nectar-eating birds uh, can enjoy as well. But the problem in the West where they're an alien species is that they're considered a feral creature and can, uh, allowed to be shot on sight. And the West Australians are trying to destroy them. Uh, they won't ever, but uh, they, they do have whole assaults on uh, flocks of lorikeets in attempt to wipe out as many as they can because two things. One, 
they're nesting in the hollows of native uh, birds and pushing out their young uh, uh, and create and holding on fiercely to their own nesting places and destroying the opportunity for the local birds to nest there as well as of course it, uh, feeding on the crops uh, and fruit of uh, or- orchardus. Mm. That's really uh, fascinating because uh, the rainbow lorikeets are the birds that I see quite often um, along Swanston Street uh, near Melbourne Uni. They're constantly early in the morning making a whole lot of noise and I look up and I see these beautiful rainbow colours. Um, so I guess it's great that at least there are some birds that are, are more visible in these urban areas so that we can remind ourselves we're not living in an artifice. Um, but Obviously, it's always nice to step out into the bush and actually really get to experience uh, the full biodiversity or range of birds. I'd just like to finally close with and talk about um, your own personal interest in birds and what really fascinates you about them. And I mean, I don't want you to pick a favourite. You don't have to pick one. But what is it about birds and um, that really interests you and inspires you? Uh, look, I can conclude the book with with a, an account that it, that says how it how it started, and it was back in 1980 when I moved to Seaford with the family first of all, and two welcome swallows came in uninvited, I might say, and mm-hmm. began to construct a little mud nest under the carport, and I I, I watched amazed uh, to see the the way these tiny creatures could these architects I called them who were able to build their house right in front of my under my nose well not quite but if I held my nose in the air but they created this mud nest lined it beautifully and then the female laid four eggs I discovered this because I got a stepladder and a mirror and was able to peep inside and watch what actually happened and over the course of weeks I saw what happened when the eggs hatched and there were these tiny pterodactyl like nestlings there squirming blind large headed with enormous mouths open every time their parents appeared with food and then they began to fledge their feathers grew and then slowly the baby sat tentatively on the edge of the nest and looking down to what must have seemed like about 17 stories below to the to the ground and began waving their wings and eventually they took off into into the air now i thought how what an what an extraordinary experience to actually live so close to two very small birds who were able to rear their own family and watch them fly off into the distance so my uh, interest became in uh, uh, i was both enthralled and intrigued by by being able to watch at first hand what was going on right, right in my own house virtually <laughs> so that was the trigger yeah. for my interest in birds absolutely well thank you very much jeff for sharing your passion and interest and in the immense research that you've done for this book is just really fascinating i highly commend um people to to look into it and to have a read uh, it's called an uncertain future australian bird life in danger and of course the other book um which you launched Launched at the same time at readings in Carlton. Um, could you share the title of that just so people can have a look? Yes, that's called uh, Too Late, How We Lost the Battle Against Climate Change. Excellent. And they're both out through Hardy Grant, so um, you can look those up and it's also on our uh, Facebook and Twitter as well. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us. It's a great pleasure, Amy. Thank you. And that was Jeff Maslin, who is the author of a book called An Uncertain Future, Australian Bird Life in Danger. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. 
Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.